0: Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 40. Felt like your period details were really fun, and yet your protagonist felt kind of modern to me. You you stayed very, you know, set in your period and a lot of your details, but she, her attitudes and her spunk Mm -hmm. felt more today. I
1: like Well, I feel like, you know, the women who lived and worked through World War I, they had to become more, if you will, modern. And I and I justify it a little bit with that. But I think there's yeah. always been those women who cause trouble throughout history and um, Philadelphia would have been one of them. I, I just do think that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just had such a fabulous time writing this book. It was so much fun.
0: This is Colleen Cambridge. Talking about the fun she had writing Murder at Mallowan Hall. It's book one in a new series that Colleen describes as a quintessential English manner murder mystery. So let's start off with your inspiration is from Agatha Christie. You're connecting to her real person. And this is my first, this is my introduction to you as a writer. But I understand that you often connect to past literary characters and people. Uh, so I wonder, you know, why for you that's an important part of inspiration?
1: Well, I think uh, it is a way to set something in history very specifically um, and able to really relate the reader to someone or maybe some event that they know but then also be able to bring in whatever I want to bring in a murder mystery an adventure plot whatever so it's it's a really nice way to kind of you know pinpoint let's use the word more more yourself to a very specific time in history I think it gives it a layer that helps the reader realize okay this this could really be happening going on around Agatha Christie or Abraham Lincoln you know
0: Let me pause right there and fill in some detail. Colleen just mentioned Abraham Lincoln. That's because Colleen wrote a series of murder mysteries set in Lincoln's time, using Lincoln as a character. She's also written a young adult series featuring the sister of Bram Stoker and the niece of Sherlock Holmes. It's about vampire hunting and mystery solving. These New York Times best-selling works were under another name, though. Her other pen name is Colleen Gleason. So you changed your name for this series, I'm guessing, to distinguish it, to set it aside, to set it as something different as your, than your previous work. But from the very beginning of me reading this story, I felt like names are really important to you.
1: Oh, indeed. I mean, yes. And and, uh, a lot of times people will ask me how I came up with a certain name for a certain character. Um, And a lot of times they just sort of materialize in my head. Mr. Dobble was Mr. Dobble from the beginning. Like I never, it wasn't like the butler. It was literally Mr. Dobble and Miss Puffley, the cook. I mean, is that not a great name for a cook? I don't know why, but it just seems like a great name for a cook, Mrs. Puffley. Um, Philida, Philida was actually for about 10 to 12 hours when I first started developing this idea, she was Esther Bright for about maybe 10 hours, literally. I had started mm-hmm. noodling around with the idea like that morning, and then that evening I was watching um, an Urco Poirot adaptation with David Suchet, who is, in my mind, the absolute best Hercule Poirot ever. I'm sorry, <laughs> Kevin Brana. I'm sorry, John Malkovich. No, mm-mm. It's going to yeah. be touche. Uh, so anyway, there was a very small side character in this particular Poirot short story turned into a television show and her name was Philida. And that name, I was like, oh, that is the perfect British name for this yeah. character. So yeah. that's where her name came from. And Mrs. Bright, Mrs. Bright just seemed like the name of a, of a housekeeper who would be, have a bright brain.
0: Yeah, it has a couple different layers of meaning. Yes. When yes. you first meet her, you realize Um, her hair is bright. There's something about her physical characteristics that also sort of weave nicely into her name. Also, like in the very beginning, I think in chapter two, we meet Constable Greensticks, who you write, despite his name is not green or slender.
1: (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Usually the names, once they appear in my brain, that's who they are. And the character names never change.
0: But again, with the names, I'm sorry, I'm like so fixated on this, but the divine couple. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think my favorite might be Mr. Sloop, Mm -hmm. whose name just sounds fairly despicable, actually. Apologies to anyone whose name is actually Sloop. It just helps you conjure the character in another way. It's funny that they just sort of come to you because in my mind, as I was reading, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, she was very thoughtful about this.
1: Well, now, actually, I have to make a confession about that in particular. It's actually funny that you should bring that up. So um, always in a murder mystery, you have all these names of all these potential suspects, and it is always hard to keep them straight. That is just something I think most murder mystery readers realize you have to deal with all these characters. You have to remember their names. So (laughs) when I actually turned this book into my editor, she read it. She loved it. Thank God. She came back to me and said, I really really There's like, I don't have any changes except... Oh my god, there's so many characters. I just having such a hard time keeping them straight. Is there anything you could do with their names oh. to make it a little easier? And so I actually did go back and Divine was a change and Sloop was a change of the um suspects. I didn't change any of the names of them of the um the The non-staff and the main characters, but it was, it is funny. I actually did go in and do that. And then there's the hyphenated couple's name. They were kind of, they're like the fussy couple. And so they seem like they would be hyphenated. So I I did a little bit of that just to help. So um, hilariously you caught me because normally I don't change names, but in this case there was a reason to do so. And and it made sense. And so now as I moved into writing the second book, I actually paid a little closer attention to the suspect's names for that reason.
0: That's really fascinating to me as a device, really Mm -hmm. with your readers in mind, because you are sort of, you're meeting a lot of people and yeah. Just and especially if you meet them all
1: at once, it's hard. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. All in one, you know, kind of sitting, you meet several people. Well, and let me just go back really quick to that because you're, you've got me on a thread I'm thinking about this now as a reader, cause I read mysteries all the time too. I find myself having to be like, okay, who is this character? Like I do that myself. Yeah. So being aware of that, even before I made the name changes, the tweaks that I did, I would also, when I was writing a scene and, and mentioning these characters, I would try to drop in a reminder you know, who it was like to just do it an extra more than I would normally for that reason.
0: Right. Well, and I think that that part of it, the reminder, or maybe sort of another physical characteristic, right, that that was very reminiscent to me of Agatha Christie. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that is. And as an author, that that should be a compliment. So like when you, oh, I take it as a compliment,
1: anybody who's who is who is at all Connecting my work to Christie's, it it is a compliment. She's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason she's the best-selling author of all time.
0: Yeah. And so when I think of Poirot, I think about the magnificent mustache. Right. And so you you're doing that. I think in the spirit of that writing style, you have some great, some great descriptions of of the people, even down to like details about their something being unkempt. Like I love the the character that is staying in the garage who ends up being, you know, helpful to Phillida, um, his descriptors are so like, I can just see him. I can see his unkempt hair and I can. She's a housekeeper.
1: Out. She's used to paying attention to how things look, how her staff looks, you know, all yeah. that. And also that makes her a good sleuth. I think you've got to be able to take notice. You've got to remember things. You've got to have an organized mind and attention to detail.
0: Yes, definitely she pays attention to details. She prides herself on that, actually. She does. Yeah. And so let's see, you did a lot of, I felt like things were very accurate in this sort of upstairs, downstairs world. And as I was kind of going back and reading about Agatha Christie, there were a lot of things that said, you know, she really did write. She was part of an upper middle class. And she really did write for that class, in that class, her characters. And you've kind of Turn that on its head because a lot of the people that we care about in this story are downstairs.
1: That was my hope. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to have a fictional manor house. And if therefore I could have make the staff as large and as varied and diverse as I wanted to, because yeah. I, I see those characters following us through the series as much as possible. And I wanted, you know, the servants to be thought of as real people, kind of like you think of when you, when you watch Downton Abbey, I mean, you really do, fields of yeah. the servants. Um, and of course uh, this is slightly more focused on the downstairs than the upstairs on like Downton Abbey, you know, is was both, but yeah I was, yeah, I was hoping to do that. I really wanted to do that.
0: Yes. And, you know, you do a great job of sort of outlining their station in life, mm. you know, mm. their role, their job, very connected to their freedoms, their abilities mm. to navigate in the world. And so you've given Phillida. um, she is an employee, but housekeeper is really an elevated status. She has the freedom to do to move around a lot to to investigate a murder, really. To
1: well, exactly. I mean, I was like, "There's no way a chambermaid could be an amateur detective," and really, there's no way a cook could be an amateur detective. She's got to be in the kitchen all the time. I mean, yeah. I just re- realistically thinking in my head, in my brain, when I'm trying to you know put this together and create a character that to me is realistic. Uh, you know, I had to think about all of those things. And it was great because really, you're right. The housekeeper has not only a lot more freedom, but, but you know, she's also a friend of Agatha's, which was yet another layer okay. I wanted in there to make her have even more freedom. I had right. to make it believable to me.
0: Yes. So we do interact a little bit with Agatha. Yes. She's in a few scenes with Phillida. And it was really intriguing to me what is their relationship? And you leave the reader guessing a little bit hmm. about Phillida's past. You fill in some of the blanks, but there's more to discover, obviously, about Phillida and her connection to Agatha. And you actually make reference to something that happened in real life to Agatha Christie. Do you want to talk at all about that?
1: Sure. So, uh anybody who's done any real, you know, research on Agatha or has seen the book lately, the uh, the mystery of Mrs. Christie, is probably aware that during the time she was the divorce was beginning between her and her first husband Archie Christie, Agatha just kind of disappeared one day. She disappeared. Nobody could find her. They found her car on the side of the road and she wasn't there and there was no trace of her. And she showed up about they found her about 11 days later at a hotel she was registered at the hotel under the name of her husband's, soon to be ex-husbands, mistress slash soon to be new wife. So yes. there was this whole big circus with the, uh, the press over this, obviously. So yeah. for, her, for the rest of her life, whenever she was with the press, they wanted to know all about that. They would ask her about it. She claims um, amnesia, didn't really know what happened. Uh, it's very unclear what happened in my mind. I think Phillida is probably the only one who knows what happened in my mind. That I think there's a, that the two women did something to help each other, and they are. There's this connection between the two of them that has to do with some ugly parts of their pasts or some difficult parts of their past, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And these two are very close friends, even though it isn't real evident. But I do think Phillida probably is the only person who, who knows what happened then.
0: Yes, it's a really nice hook for people that are fans of Agatha or people that are kind of aware of that mysterious part of her life, that you have created a friend in this fictional world who has knowledge of that, that you allude to that in the story, that she's, that they are connected. Mm -hmm. And then Phyllida is mysterious herself. She doesn't Mm want to, we don't really know her age. She's sort of slippery with investigators when she's answering questions and, um, she
1: does not want anybody to know her age. <laughs>
0: yes, or take her picture. She doesn't want to be right, photographed. Right. So yeah. we do get there, this sense, too, that there's more to her than we know, even in this story.
1: Yes. Just I mean, a nice she knows hug. how to pick a lock. Hmm. You know? Mm. Hmm. <laughs> I might but feel at the same time, you know, at clue. the same time, she's not going to be somebody who's done everything in the world ever. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's going to have some limitations as to what her past is. But I think we can have some fun with it. I'm pretty sure we can have some fun with that.
0: That's a fun place to pause and let you listen to the beginning of this story about Agatha Christie's housekeeper, Miss Phillida Bright. This is from Murder at Mallowen Hall by Colleen Cambridge, narrated by the multi-talented Jennifer Dixon, who herself has an interesting past as a retired music therapist, counselor, and opera singer. Dixon was produced by Highbridge, a division of Recorded Books.
2: Phyllida Bright had seen her share of bodies during the Great War, So when she discovered the dead man sprawled on the floor, it didn't even occur to her to scream. The unanticipated sight did elicit a quiet gasp of surprise, and then a rush of concern, with exasperation following quickly on its heels. As if I don't have enough to manage today, she thought, as her battlefield nurse's training kicked in, and she knelt to ascertain whether the man was, in fact, actually dead. He was quite dead. "'not to mention significantly bloodied "'due to the fountain pen protruding from the side of his neck. "'The stains in the library's rug would require an extra two hours of work "'and then time to dry before it could be replaced, "'and she didn't even want to contemplate how long it would take "'to get the blood spatters off the books and wallpaper. "'Nonetheless, Phillida closed her eyes "'and wished a sincere godspeed to the poor man's soul.' then added a note of gratitude that she'd been the one to discover Mr. Waring, instead of Jinny, the high-pitched parlour-maid who saw to the library each morning. That would have been just the icing on the cake.' Already mentally readjusting her staff's schedule in order to keep them clear of the library and its vicinity, as well as giving them as little opportunity as possible to gossip about the room's unexpected contents, she rose, the ring of keys at her waist jingling pleasantly, and went for the telephone on the desk. As she waited for the operator to connect the call— "'Philida turned on the desk-lamp, then straightened the carved mahogany tray "'where the fountain-pen rested, when it wasn't protruding from a dead man's artery. "'She also realigned the small vase always kept filled with flowers or greens, "'removing the single drooping-leaf and tucking it into her dress-pocket, "'and tusked when she noticed a dull streak at the edge of the desk's glossy surface.' The scissors and the stack of stationery on the desk were untouched, as was the small agate paperweight. At last her call was connected, and even then what should have been a simple task became tedious. "'Yes, constable, it is, in fact, a real dead body.' It was the third time she'd been required to give this information, and the reason for the repetition was not due to the crackling of the telephone line— my name is Mrs. Bright. I'm Mrs. Mallowan's housekeeper here at Mallowan Hall. Mallowan Hall? Do you mean the place where that detective book lady lives at? Phillida gritted her teeth. Yes, Constable. You're saying there's a dead body in the library at Agatha Christie's house? I am, in fact, saying precisely that, Constable. "'and I expect you'll attend to this post-haste. "'Mr. and Mrs. Mallowan have a houseful of guests.' "'She wasn't certain he heard her over his guffaws of laughter. "'It's a good jest it is, ma'am,' he managed to say between hearty chuckles. "'A dead body there at—' "'Constable Greensticks,' she said in her most severe tone. "'This is no laughing matter. "'A man has been murdered, and I suggest you attend to the matter immediately.' At last she hung up the telephone, assured that the constable fully understood the gravity of the situation, while being well aware that the operator who'd connected them was probably beginning to make her own telephone calls to carry the news. Her attention fell on poor Mr. Waring. She was confident, but not entirely certain that was his name. After all, His arrival last evening had not been anticipated, and he had most certainly not been on the guest list. That was only one of many problems with unexpected guests. Philida was tempted to lay a blanket over the poor man, but decided she'd best not disrupt the scene. Mr. Waring was young, in his late twenties, with light brown hair and a matching moustache. His attire was stylish the pre-made trousers being the sort bought at a department store instead of having been tailored but fine nonetheless he wore a coat of excellent wool and fine cut that was only two years out of style it was clean and she noted with satisfaction possessed a fully intact hem in Phillida's opinion, a sagging hemline was the first indication of a lack of attention to detail and appearance, and was usually borne out in other ways. Philida glanced at the clock and saw that it was just seven. Mrs. Agatha wouldn't normally be up for at least two hours, and even then she would go into her office to write for a time before joining her husband and their guests— Phillida was also reminded to schedule the men to come and oil the clocks next week, after the house guests had gone. It would be two weeks early, but she'd noticed the grandfather clock at the bottom of the main staircase was grinding a bit. The more pressing task was to inform Mr Dobble of the situation, and the very thought was enough to have her wishing for another very strong cup of Darjeeling— One usually needed some type of fortification before interacting with the Mallowan's butler, and since it was hardly past seven in the morning, she would have to forego the rye whisky. Unwilling to leave the library unattended, Philida rang for Mr. Dobble. Admittedly, the idea of calling the butler to her rather than going to him, as one would normally do, made her smile. Not that that was unusual— phillida for all her exacting standards and regimental mind was possessed of an optimistic pragmatic and sunny personality although she was most often required to act in a reserved manner as the individual who managed the majority of the household staff not to mention its budget She had been known to play whist with the parlour maids, assist with fashion opinions for the maids during their days off, and give relationship advice to a chambermaid related to the former chauffeur. He'd been a poor prospect due to his wandering eye and hands, and more than one of the kitchen maids had seen the very correct housekeeper go soft and gooey-eyed over a litter of fuzzy kittens.' Two of said kittens had subsequently found their way into a basket in Phillida's sitting-room, joining her collection of detective novels and books on nearly every topic under the sun, and were now full-grown, sleek cats who disdained the basket that had once been their bed. However, Stilton and Rye helped keep at bay any mice who might confuse the larder for their homestead. Holding one or the other in her lap, when the felines permitted, of course, also provided Phillida moments of calm and restoration, which was particularly appreciated after dealing with Mr. Dobble. Phillida had not come up working in domestic service, starting as a scullery maid or chambermaid, when she was thirteen or fourteen, and making her way to kitchen-maid or parlour-maid, and then through the hierarchy from there. That made her quite unusual. In fact, "'She hadn't worked in service at all until several years after the Great War, "'and her work with the army had ended. "'The reasons she'd chosen employment as the housekeeper of a large manor "'were excellent and no one's business but her own. "'That was part of why she and Mr. Dobble weren't particularly friendly.' she suspected he was suspicious of a woman who had come into the coveted position of housekeeper without a long history of scrubbing floors as far as he knew and who was comparatively young although certainly not that young and most definitely not inexperienced to have such a prestigious role in a large gentrified household and despite his best efforts, she did not deign to share with him the details of her background, marital status, or age, even when pressed. But Phillida was certain most of Mr. Dobble's dislike was due to the fact that she lived up to her name, not only in personality, but with her hair colour. It was bright, bright strawberry gold. The first time she'd met him, the butler had eyed her up and down, and suggested that she subdue that fire upon your head. She had refrained from suggesting that he remove the walking-stick that appeared to have been inserted into his bottom, and had commenced with ensuring that whenever she was in Mr. Dobble's presence, her fiery hair was smooth, neat, and not the least bit subdued— Fortunately, housekeepers didn't wear caps, and so her uncovered head always shone like a beacon. she just finished opening the curtains to allow the light to shine in when the library door opened. Mr. Dobble stepped in silently, as the most excellent of servants did. He was approximately fifty years old. He was just as vague about his age as she was, with a clean-shaven face and an equally hairless scalp with a pronounced dent above his left ear, a characteristic that led some of the staff to call him Old Dent when safely out of his hearing. Everything about the butler was long, his ears, his fingers, his torso, the hair of his grey eyebrows— with the exception of his legs, which were, in relation to the rest of him, not long at all. It wasn't that he was short. It was simply that his height came equally from torso and lower limbs. He had dark eyes and pale, pale skin that was so smooth, Philida could only assume he indulged in a very fine facial cream. As most butlers did, he dressed in clothing as fine as that of the gentry, However, because no one in the upper class ever wanted their servants to be mistaken for someone of their status, there was always in a butler's attire some element that was off—a slightly out-of-date necktie, a too-old coat, a pair of trousers cut the wrong way. That minor anachronism assisted those of the upper class from assuming the butler was one of theirs, or vice versa— as when Lord Haldane had once been mistaken for being a butler by a chambermaid while travelling on a train. Mr. Dobble took three steps into the library, his expression set and haughty, and his eyes trained accusingly on Phillida, his mouth open in what surely was about to be a crisp reprimand. Then he saw Mr. Waring. Mr. Dobble stumbled to a halt with an inadvertent cry that strangled off whatever snappish comment he was about to make. As you can see, Mr. Dobble, we have a situation. I shall contact the constabulary at once. He'd recovered quickly, but Phillida was delighted to note that he'd initially been far more discombobulated than she. She hid a satisfied smile as she replied. "'I've already spoken with Constable Greensticks. "'I expect he will arrive shortly, "'presumably with the doctor in attendance, "'so we have only a very short time to manage the staff "'and to inform Mr. Max and Mrs. Agatha.' "'As one does, she prudently waited for the butler "'to seize control of the situation. "'I shall inform Mr. Max,' he said. "'And the footman, of course. "'You'll attend to your own staff, Mrs. Bright.' I do hope you'll be able to contain their squeals and shrieks. We do have guests, you know. She gave him a frosty smile. I shall endeavour to ensure the maid's histrionics are kept to a dull roar. He paused, standing over the body. Good heavens, a fountain pen? Indeed, Philida moved closer. Quite horrifying. That's the reporter, is it, then? To do the interview with Mrs. Agatha? Mr. Waring? To my recollection, Philida hadn't answered the door to welcome the guests as Mr. Dobble had, but she had made certain she caught glimpses of each of the arrivals as they came in, and at dinner as well, for it would be her staff that attended to their chambers and general needs. She supposed if one could find a silver lining in the cloud of a murdered guest, it was that it would be less upsetting to Mr. and Mrs. Mallowan since the dead man wasn't known to them at all. Still, he obviously had been known to someone. Mr. Dobble made a thoughtful noise. Carbolic for the stains, I assume. Only after a salted water soak. And the wallpaper? Milk and boiling water, of course. Lavender polish to finish. I'll have Stanley and Freddy remove the rug once, the body, uh, as soon as possible. I would appreciate that, Mr. Dobble. And so would Jinny. she thought dryly. Stanley, the head footman, was a particular favourite of the housemaids. They looked down at the body, neither of them apparently willing to move. Living in the house of a writer who penned popular detective novels meant that dead bodies were a constant source of discussion— including the finer points of the cleverest way to make them so, poisoning and stabbing, but without so much blood, were particular favourites of Mrs. Agatha's, and occasionally there was strangulation, of course, but to have an actual murder take place here, to see an actual dead body sprawled on the floor with a writing implement projecting from an artery— The bloodstains on the rug indicated that Mr. Waring hadn't died immediately and seemed to have crawled some distance, no doubt struggling to find help while bleeding profusely. Philida shivered, contemplating the horrifying last moments of the dead man's life. It must have happened late at night, or surely someone would have heard the disturbance. "'Who could have done such a thing?' Mr. Dobble's stiff demeanour slipped a bit as raw emotion crept into his voice. "'I cannot imagine,' she replied in a likewise less formal tone. "'But it must have been someone here.' The butler's breathing hitched a little, and he said a word under his breath that Philida hadn't heard since she was working with the troops. She was, however, inclined to agree with the sentiment— all thoughts of carbolic acid, clock oiling and managing the staff, tasks and thoughts she'd clung to as a shield against the reality, disintegrated as sensibility settled in. There was a murderer here at lovely, sedate Mallowan Hall.
0: Checking my notes. Oh, the cats. So Phillida has these two cats, and... You've named them Stilton and Rye.
1: After two of her favorite things. Yes. So where did that come from?
0: Do you have cats?
1: No, I I have had cats in the past, but I don't have cats now. Um, You know, I just, first of all, cats belong in a mystery. I'm sorry, they just do. And (laughs) it just seems like the kind of person who would have cats, not just one, but two, Um, as opposed to dogs. She's not a dog person. They're just dogs or, you know, cats are more like her personality, very sleek, very self-assured, very confident, a little bit arrogant. I mean, let's, let's be honest. She's a little arrogant. She knows her worth and um, they're very, you know, they might deign to give you their attention if they choose. So they just seem like they fit her more than a dog would.
0: Yeah. I like them. I like the way she engages with them in the story. They provide a little comic relief when uh, Mr. Doubles in the room and he's- (laughs) clearly not comfortable with the cats. There's a point in the story. I think this is in the voice of Agatha. She talks about the way that someone plays cards, tells you something about how they approach life, taking risks. Mm -hmm. Where did that little bit of wisdom come from?
1: Well, I play bridge regularly. So I'm thinking about that a little bit. And also you probably know, Agatha Christie wrote a a murder mystery around a bridge game cards on the table. And Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a nice little Easter egg to put in the book to let the reader know, oh, Agatha was, even back then, she was not only thinking about the body in the library, she was thinking about cards on the table. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I like that. I think that's something everybody can, even if you've never played poker, you can agree in games yes. of chance, specifically in cards, the way you show your hand. Um, whether
1: you bluff, whether you're poker face, I, whether you, yeah.
0: Yeah, but it does say something about you as a person. <laughs>
1: And I think, you know, Philida, you know, has some limitations in the sense that, you know, she can't really interview the suspects. How else is she going to learn about them? So hearing things and observing, that was a limitation that I was, that I tried to be very true to because I didn't want, like, you just can't have a housekeeper interrogating a guest yes. as a murder suspect. You just can't right. do it. It's not realistic at all for me
0: more fun as the reader to feel too like you're just sort of eavesdropping on things right and you're right. noticing things through Philida,
1: mm-hmm. and she snoops which again that's one of the benefits yeah. of being a housekeeper she can snoop and even if she got caught she wouldn't be in trouble because it's her job so you're trying to take those all of those elements and be realistic what she, can she do what can't she do now the day ma at the end was maybe <laughs> a little a little self-serving but oh my gosh how could you not do a day no ma at the end plus I had Max Mallowan on her side and he made sure it happened so
0: that was a very Agatha Christie thing to do yes. Yes, yes it was a nice I don't want any spoilers but it was really fun as a reader to have that scene unfold because she I'm glad me. you surprised me she surprised Good. me yay I love it when
1: that <laughs> happens I love it when that happens
0: yeah so the The last question I always ask authors is based on the name of the podcast. The name of the podcast is *Desideratum*, which is a Latin word that means essential things. There was a poem when I was growing up that it starts with go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. And it's those sort of, yeah. So for you, if you had to explain to someone, these are my essential things, what would you say?
1: Self care. I think easily for me, it's self care. Uh, I'm an introvert, although I can get in front of a group of people and talk no problem. I can work a room, I can network like crazy, but I'm very introverted. So, self care is number one for me. I have three children who are all out of the house now. But, you know, all through my whole life, I have always been the person who would read on my lunch break, would take a nap whenever I could, would take a hot bath with a book. These are all alone time. Get me away from people, let me recharge with a glass of wine or without cup of tea, whatever, that, that is probably one of my essential things and all wrapped up in the self care, all the wonderful things that I just mentioned, reading baths and fireplaces, you know, all of those things all wrap up into just taking care of my mental my mental health myself. So that.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. I think that's something <laughs> that moms, especially sometimes struggle with. Right? Yes.
1: And they feel like they're being selfish. When they take time for themselves. And I've always, I I was fortunate my mom was also, I think, good about self care as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And she encouraged that. So I always just, you know, I would always just, I had to do it. Yeah. And I still do.
0: That's a good spot to stop with a reminder to take a break, take good care of yourself. Thanks to Larissa at Kensington Books for introducing me to Colleen. For Desert or Autumn listeners, Kensington generously provides the discount code DP20 to use at checkout to save 20% across their incredible library, including Colleen's Murder at Mallowen Hall. That's DP20 at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, Please look for Murder at Malowan Hall on Libro.fm. The audiobook, produced by Highbridge, a division of Recorded Books Audio, is available now. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with FM in the show notes and on the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice at Libro.fm. FM This has been Episode 40 As always Thank you For listening